Welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilfrey. I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Christopher Prunty. On today's episode, we are very excited to have game designer Luke Crane on the podcast today, and we're going to cut to that interview now. Hello and welcome. We are joined today by Luke Crane. He is a game designer that you may know. I mean, he's kind of in there. Uh, he's designed games like Mouse Guard, Burning Wheel, and many, many others, including some that we're going to get talked about right now, actually. And uh, Luke, for those of us who might not know you too well, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, everybody. Hello, people in the world building world. Um, uh, yeah, thanks, gentlemen, for having me on. Uh, it's nice to um, get out of the virtual house. I feel like <laughs> I've been, uh, yeah, I feel like I've been locked in this room with me and my own Rorschach uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> for like eight or nine months. Uh, so yeah, I'm uh, a game designer uh, living and working in New York City. My day job, uh, I work at Kickstarter, uh, helping people make games and lots of other cool creative projects, uh, which is really a dream job. It's quite lovely. And I am obsessed with role-playing games. Um, I don't make role-playing games because I want to. I make them because the voices in my head tell me to. And I think that is probably one of the best places to start. Uh, not, not in terms of inspiration, but uh, you know, when you come up with something like Inheritance, which is obviously a labor mm. of love. I mean, it took how many years to get that game going? My question actually is, you know, it, it took Inheritance several years to get off the ground and become a Kickstarter and becoming an art game and a failure of an art game, as you actually said. Um, but my question more in lies with how do you know when a game is ready? You know, like when it comes to writing or it comes to uh, art in a lot of ways, you can work on it forever. So how do you know? How, what's your process in development that you can kind of understand this is when it's ready to go? Well, none, none of the games I release are perfect. Uh, not, not I have not yet released a perfect game. I don't intend to release a perfect game. So there is a point at which I just say, ugh, fuck it. Let's just get this out here. And I remember that point with Burning Wheel, um, and you know, at that point when that's not actually the moment that you're like, okay, send it to the printer for me, that's the moment. Um, after that moment, I start wrapping things up and I start saying like, okay, nope, this is the box that we're going to play in here. Um, we're going to finish what's in this box and we're not going to just keep going forever. So, um, so right, and so that's when you start making compromise and tying thing uh, compromises, tying things up, and and saying like, yeah, well, you know, this rule isn't perfect, uh, but it's good enough, and let let's see what happens. Like let's let's not over explain this. Let's see how players um, misinterpret this <laughs> as we go. Um, but getting to that point of saying, okay, you like, ugh, I, we just need to do this. Uh, it's actually for me very very intense it's a very emotional the difficult process and i have to be able to conceptualize the entire game in my head and i have to um uh and the game just has to like ring true emotionally to me right i have like in that conceptualization of the game uh it like you know when we test it or or, or you know when i'm thinking about it like it, it has to have that uh 
that very credible emotional core. Um, and because that, that's really what I'm looking for in all of my games is to try to to try to evoke that you know, that that sense of seeming, you know, that, that a, a sense of feeling um, in there. So, yeah, Inheritance took 12 years. Um, and I it was good. It was painful and hard and uh, very frustrating. I like I collapsed in on myself um, uh, multiple times, um, <laughs> like, you know, it, during that process being like, fuck it. No, never. I'm never releasing this game. I'm never working on this game again. Um, uh, but what, what I was really saying there was, okay, buddy, take a step back, take a breath. Um, you're not ready to release this game. Game's great. But it, uh, but the hardest thing to admit there was I actually wasn't a good enough designer to hit what, uh, w- the notes that I wanted to, um, and I just didn't have, like, as a person, uh, I didn't have the, uh, the, like, the nuanced perspective on family and uh, family and religion and friendship that I needed to, like, build those notes into that game. Speaking of inheritance, so can you tell us, a, so a lot of us have not played LARPs um, mm. or have much of an experience of how they differ from, you know, tabletop RPGs. Like I personally had one experience in Cape May with a um, journalist who was writing about LARPs that was like fantastic and amazing. I've never had an experience like that. So can you give us a little bit of sense for that for those newbie like RPG players and designers out there who don't understand the difference? How Inheritance like plays with that? Um. Inheritance is a like a kind of one shot burning wheel scenario that I developed out into its own game. It has a lot of the same core underpinning, so it, it should feel familiar to tabletop role playing game players. But you stand up, right? That that you, you don't sit at the table. <laughs> okay. you, uh, you're not rolling dice, um, and like we just put a little more performance first, right? We we put Cheetos and picking your nose and making jokes like farther down the list, those are usually top lists for like the tabletop <laughs> role-playing game. Yes. Um, like those are the first things that you have to do before you can get to like saying a thing in character or rolling the dice. And it, um, uh, but it, yeah, in Inheritance, we say like, okay, no, like we're, we're, we're going to have a very intense experience for three hours. We're going to stand up. We're going to move room to room. We're going to ask you to really commit to this. Um, and, uh, and, you're going to have a really good time, you know, if you can, can give us that. And then, you know, you can fart and make jokes and, and whatnot um, and, and get back to your, to the real way of playing. Uh, does, is that, is that helpful? Is that a good summation of, of LARP? Yeah. So like, it seems like the space, like the moving through the space is a factor, right? That we just, it seems very simple and straightforward, but it's something we don't even think about, right? Cause we're usually just sitting at the table. Yeah, moving through the like the the inheritance begins with a trick, with a magic trick, mm-hmm. um, and that like because everyone's like, uh, like like they're either in the like oh cool Vikings mode, which is not <laughs> a great place to start, honestly. You're already in the wrong headspace, uh, uh, or the like oh this is goofy and weird uh, 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 mode, which uh, honestly is probably a better place to start than oh cool Vikings, um. Uh, so, so the, the magic trick in inheritance is that we stand everybody up, get them in a circle. We give them all a prop, 
or, or we give, I'm sorry, we, we, the prop is actually limited. We've created a limited resource prop. There's, there's nine players. There's seven of these little props, these sticks. Um, and everyone, you know, has their cues from their character. And now everyone is put on the spot immediately to say something meaningful about a person they've never met before. Uh, right. The, 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 the patriarch of the family who's died. Um, and this is it. It is a magic trick um, that uh, forces you into the moment, right? It's, a, it's very, right? very magical. You step into a circle. You have a, a rune stave in your hand, right? Covered with, with arcane runes, literally. Um, yeah. or, uh, and, and then you are called upon to improvise and contribute. And everyone is supportive whether like their character might disagree but everyone in the circle is like oh thank you for saying that really cool thing i know what to say now um and it just drains away so much of the tension and awkwardness in that moment and gets people thinking um and, and it's just so easy too because like i'm drawing on these very um common themes mm -hmm. your grandfather has died like draw on that you've, or you're at a funeral that you don't want to be at, uh, you know, or you were not invited to this funeral, but you're going anyway. Like these are, these are really easy marks for, for most people to hit. Um, and then, and for the folks that don't want to hit them, it's also a funeral. So you can just be like quiet and sad. Um, <laughs> right. It, it really works. It, it is a magic trick. And then once we get into the next scene and people sit down to dinner, like it is on. Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, there's a little more standing up. There's a little more moving through the space. There's a little more of this performance aspect. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you just it, like, once I can like trick you into that space, things just slide along so easily. And then, yeah, two hours pass and people are like, I, I cannot believe I just <laughs> murdered my father. What <laughs> just happened? <laughs> No, it's like that that whole idea of like ritual it's just insane that um the mere act of like standing up you know and like going through the motions somehow mm -hmm. makes the immersion happen faster right i think that's part of it oh absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah and it's not that immersion doesn't happen in uh, a tabletop role-playing game yeah uh it's that i need to accelerate that process right because mm -hmm. i've only got you for like you know three hours total like it which includes like setup briefing and um and like kind of post-mortem um um yeah like and, and inheritance does require like like a, a cool down afterwards people are just like oh my god um, yeah yeah i i think one of the most brilliant things that i've heard you say was when you're talking about character decisions and how they inform the character and i think that when we look at inheritance specifically you're forcing the players to make a character decision immediately. Like the magic trick that you talk about helps inform that character, you know, like pretty definitively in some cases I would imagine. And I love the idea that you're kind of ushering, you know, like, like you said, like a guided tour of forced decision-making to really help the characters understand, or the players rather understand their character even more. Yeah. And, and, that's why that takes 12 years to, to get, <laughs> to get people in there and, and to, 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 to write like the, the idea that it's like, you know, a Viking age drama uh, is also a trick uh, because you're going to learn things about 
Viking age drama that you didn't know before. Um, and, but it, but like, if I tell you that it's like the, you know, this is the funeral ritual of the Glorper Glorps, uh, and you know, and, and you must fight for your Glorping inheritance. You're going to be like, uh, okay. But, <laughs> but if I say, yeah, it's a, you know, it, it's a Viking funeral. It, it, just there. Pe- most people are like, okay, go on. <laughs> uh, so right, there, there has to be a series of, of these, um, of these tiny little keys and tricks and whatnot to, to get people into the frame. Um, and then, yeah, an inheritance, we have to turn up the volume very, very quickly uh, to get you to this point of, um, yeah, of like, of really dedicated focused play for a, a few hours. Um, it's wonderful. Yeah. And, and my, my follow-up to that is, you know, I'll, you, you, as you mentioned, right? Like everyone has to have some kind of a contextual anchor for what the scenario is going to be like when it, when you say Viking funeral, or when you say inheritance fighting over a Viking funeral, people get like this evocative image of what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I feel like that directly translates when it comes to talking about world building. What do you often use to kind of anchor people in the context of a world that they might be entirely unfamiliar with? Um, I, I think that actually the most important thing for for this particular medium uh, is whatever the 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 hook is. Like if I, you know, yeah, if I give you the glorping funeral pitch and you're like what but then i can like back it up with oh you're gonna play this character who wants this thing um that's really the key there um uh like because we can get past that first hurdle of like okay this is going to be really foreign to you um to like oh no here's someone i understand and i understand what they want and need um the uh so yeah so i i, I think that like the like being able to follow up whatever your pitch is with with um like who is it that you're going to play what's their perspective what do they need here uh is key and you know and you see us you see role playing games and and designers really fail at this uh because we tend to say like oh so you could be a part of this nation or that na- and you could be this or you and and, and but these people are at war with these people because of thousands of years ago and, and you're like oh buddy um but like if you look one of the games that does this just like you know it, it's like brain breaking how fucking self-evident obvious and good that um this uh you know they they this game is at this is a uh, vampire the masquerade like the the og vampire the masquerade is just like you're okay you're a modern day vampire uh, all, right, all right buddy go on and you're going to be one of these vampire clans the bruja the anarchs the, and you're like oh all right okay <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well, do i get to wear doc martens as a vampire oh i want to be that vampire um <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, Shadowrun, another game, brilliant, like so much better. Like if, if you look at like the, the, the evolution of technology that Shadowrun made from D and D, right. It's so fucking tiny. It is such a microscopic step forward. Um, but 
sometimes that's what it takes. But basically saying like, okay, yes, there are classes. There's some, yes, okay, sure, the classes are uh, customizable via a point by. Okay, great. That like, sure, sure. Um, but it's, no, we have color plates in the book that say Street Samurai, Decker, Elven Mage over them. Like, can you imagine if D&D launched with that in 74 and we're just like, you know, fighting man, a magic user. And then, they, <laughs> but they had like, I mean, those are right. Like they, like the, the, the piece of technology that comes forward there is that one, they, they remove that kind of like very clinical distance that D&D had toward the character types. Um, they, they build the, the character types, the, the archetypes in terms of Shadowrun into the setting. Like Street Samurai uh, is not Fighting Man. It's Street Samurai. It's, wait, say that again? Street? What, is, what does that mean? Street Samurai? Do I get a sword? Because if I get a sword and a machine gun, <laughs> I'm, I think I need to play that guy. Um, and, and they're like, oh, machine gun. And you get some st- really stupid cyber blades. And you're like, what? Yes! Um, right? Like, so, like... Again, to go back to my initial point, that that uh, that like like you tell me like in 2050 the Great Awakening has happened and dragons and the ghost dance and I'm like, uh, what? I'm sorry, I fell asleep. Um, but but if you're like you get to play a street samurai fighting back to back with your elven mage buddy, I'm like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> is is that how you get into big historical deep dives? of like 18th century France and everything like that. It's like, I don't care about the historical concept so much as I care about playing D'Artagnan and fighting Protestant necromancers underneath like Paris. Is that what you're getting into here? A little bit, a little bit. Uh, if you look at Miseries and Misfortunes and what I did there, I really, uh, I went the more Shadowrun route. I don't have Jordan's art budget and I don't have Jeff Lobenstein doing color plates for me, but I, um <laughs> The, uh, but the, the, you know, I, I took, um, like old school D and D and I was like, but what if life paths, uh, and those life paths are much more in line with street samurai, uh, uh, where, yeah, you're playing an occultist, uh, or you're playing a Jesuit. Jesuit is the street samurai of miseries and misfortunes. I'll tell you, or maybe the elven mage. I don't know. Um, the, uh, so the historical stuff, Burning Wheel is infused with historical stuff, right? Like, uh, I, I I knew I needed more juice than just the Silmarillion to to make that game go. I needed a, a, a stronger foundation, and and fortunately, I had uh, discovered uh, Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuckman, and I just mined that. Uh, and then, but once I hit the like Tuckman stuff, it, like she's very good at telling like a story for non historians, which I am not a historian, so. Uh, so she, she painted the, that world very well. Uh, but then I dug in deeper going into, um, Desmond Seward's stuff and, and other, you know, historical texts to like get even more detail. Um, uh, Desmond Seward's account of like the siege of Malta is one of the greatest things you can ever read, by the way. Um, the, uh, the, um, so the, the, wonderful thing about the historical side and it it, for me is this realization that it is a fantasy world on its own 
it's a or a sci-fi world or fantasy world. What it, like it depends on which way you want to focus. If you want to focus on the zero to hero narrative, or you want to focus on the the technology narrative, um, maybe Miseries is a sci-fi game. Holy shit! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I think it might be a sci-fi game. Oh, all right. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but uh, the um, the the social rules, the technological rules, uh, um, uh, scientific rules, religious rules that these people operated under are so foreign to us. And this is like just pre-modern, right? So this is 1648. It's not that long ago in terms of like what we, where we hang our hats with like uh, fantasy games and whatnot. Um, the, uh, but it is, it is unimaginably foreign. So, for me, then the challenge is again, like, right. I've got this setting, which you literally, your modern brain, you cannot conceive of what it's like to look through one of these characters eyes. So again, I need to do that trick. I need to very quickly give you that pitch, um, of like, right. This, this world, you know, at its nadir that like there's, uh, climate change, war, plague, uh, religious strife right oh you're like yeah yeah yeah. okay i understand all these things cool um and then right and you're going to play uh you know uh you know someone just outside of of the bounds of like polite and civilized society uh trying to 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 carve their way in uh you're gonna right you're gonna play an occultist or a a jesuit or a petty noble right you're not gonna play in miseries and misfortunes you don't play a, a prince fuck no you play a petty noble you play like like that's like most people right in modern concepts when you say nobility you're like oh someone who's rich and someone who's got all this like good looks and privilege and whatnot no not in 1648 you're a poor desperate asshole uh you're like the the only thing you have is a sword um and which makes you an asshole uh, and, and most of you aren't even good at using the sword. You're most of you are terrible at it, which is why you keep losing wars. Um, so, uh, but you know, we got to walk you into that cold, cold pool very slowly. Um, the, uh, so, so right. So the, 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 the historical stuff is really like the, for me, it's the, the ultimate achievement in terms of like fantasy or, or sci-fi gaming, because, I have so much rich material, so, so much research and material that I can put into the game. So one, I need to synthesize it and make it gameable and not just be like, here you go. Here's all the history books I read. <laughs> Talk to you in 10 years. Um, right. I need to, to be able to put it in, in, into a playable format. Um, but also I need to, like, my goal here is to get you thinking, uh, you know, like these people were thinking uh, in this period, which is not what you think right now. Um, it's not your your modern conception. Most people who hit this t- period, uh, like go forth and look at all of the like the Dumas style era games, right? Anything from 1628 to the, into 1670s, right? One, they lump all this th- that whole period together, and that's insane. That's fucking L13 through N through L14. Don't do that. It's three completely different eras, uh, and then immediately. The first thing they do is say, and Cardinal Richelieu is a sorcerer. No, <laughs> he wasn't. He was smart. That's <laughs> he wasn't in league with the devil. 
He was smart and he had foibles. He was jealous and petty, but he was really smart. How do you do that? How do you make a villain who's really smart in a role-playing game? Way harder than making Cardinal Richelieu was a sorcerer demon man and the three musketeers must dispel the demon to save Queen Anne. Oh, oh my God. That is... That is a fine, fine rant if I've ever heard one. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Right, um, sorry, y'all. Save that. I don't know. That one That one has been brewing for years. I, yeah, I can tell that like you've talked to a therapist about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, you you I, have I, no idea how many people say like to me like when I tell them like the barest thing about Misery's Misfortunes and they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and Cardinal Richelieu is the sorcerer or whatever. And I'm like, one, he's dead. It's 1648, motherfucker. <laughs> he's fucking dead. Uh, and two, no. <laughs> uh, all right, I, I think, sorry. I'm, I'm done. No, 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 that's perfect. I, I think it. I think it, what you're talking about here, it really comes down to like, when you look at history, are you a facts and figures type person? Or are you more like, like you said before, Barbara Tuckman, who when you're reading like guns of autumn or guns of August, when, you know, there's that human element to it where you realize that, Oh, they're all cousins and they have all kind of known each other. Like all the leaders of the free world in this war against each other. There's such a humane element to it. Right. Oh my God. That the moment in the book where she describes Kaiser Wilhelm playing squash with the English uh, ambassador. (laughs) Do you remember this? And he, he says, you know, he, he smashes the birdie with the racket as the ambassador retells it and said, and as he does it, he says, I will cut through France like this. <laughs> and he hadn't even announced his intentions to, to like, to go to war or anything like that. He like, he, that dude was insane. Um, I, I fucking love moments like that though, where you <laughs> understand a person in such like a small, infinite, like, uh, expression of their character, you know, like that, yeah. th- like that moment speaks volumes of who he is and his decision making going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, um, yeah, I, it, I just love it, and I think that that's like a pretty stark, you know, like difference in terms of I want to hit things with my sword compared to what are my feelings involved about this. You know, like I, I feel like it, that is a pretty stark split in the game design space. Yeah, I mean, I, I think satisfying satisfying uh, visceral desire for action is fine. I, I think that that's real. Like, I want to have thrilling battles in Miseries and Misfortunes. Like, it's not just like the, oh, I caught the plague simulator. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did this um, in the last playtest. We did this, this raid uh, on a Roman, an old Roman fort in the Pyrenees that these bandits had taken over and were, you know, using to, to rob uh, folks uh, traveling through the mountains um, down to Toulouse. And, uh, and this was even a side mission. Like the characters, like the, the characters overall mission was like to, to, you know, ferry someone over the mountains. And of course they encounter these bandits and all this crazy stuff happens, but they, we did this raid in this Roman fort and uh, it was so much fun. It was just like delirious amounts of fun. Um, for right to to be having our little dudes because in miseries also i break complete form here and you play with standees like you, you're supposed to play on a gridded map with standees and so yeah we had a whole like a table-sized map of this roman fort and we're moving our little standees around 
um and shit was blown up things were on fire the they're like uh their little like spanish uh or not spanish um andoran militia that they had brought with them um got shot shot by canister shot from a cannon like what what war could you ask for <laughs> Um, I, but so I, I think that, right, like, like the desire to have those thrilling moments um, is real. I, I just want you to feel very human in those moments in my games. Um, I want you, like, I, I think it's more thrilling when you're like, this could end badly for me here. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that you have to be a master tactician or like a, a, a marksman or something in, in my games. It, it, they like mitigating the, like, this could end badly for me. Uh, like usually I am asking for a little bit of tactical input from the players uh, in my games, but uh, I'm more often asking for them to like stake their soul in some way, whether it's rewards and burning wheel or, or years and miseries and misfortunes, you know, I'm asking them to, to, uh, to invest. Um, And usually having, you know, in burning wheel or torch or whatever, you would have to, to build up that reservoir in advance and then invest it in this important moment. Uh, And, Right, and then that helps mitigate the the vagaries, the uncertainty of the the dice and whatnot. Now, now that the historical tangent is done, I, I I'm sorry, I fucking love getting into historical nerdy shit. So anytime I have the opportunity, I'm like, oh, I'm I'm fucking in. Let's go. Sorry, Chris, <laughs> we can do a can whole we... hour on that, dude, because I will go. Uh, we're already halfway, like we're already half an hour in, and I'm like, where did the fucking time go? Oh my god. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris. Yeah, you had you had a question. Go ahead. Uh, my question was about uh, morality in games, in mm. the fact that uh, a lot of RPGs and everything that is part of what separates it from it just being like risk or axes and allies. Uh, it's where you bring yourself into it, and then you have to have a moral dilemma about do I do X or Y. Uh, and I was wondering, how do you typically bring that in as a mechanic, or do you just naturally assume that the players will do it? Uh, well, is Clue a role-playing game? It can become one. No. <laughs> Absolutely no, it cannot. I will role-play when I play Clue. <laughs> no. You will perform while you uh, play yeah. Clue, and you may, uh, you may even play a role for a moment. But there's nothing in that game. There's no rule in that game that drives those decisions, invites those decisions, um, and has consequences or rewards for those decisions, um, right? Like so in right, and there's no moral decisions in Clue. There, there just aren't, and I, I think that's just the core uh, of of a role playing game. Um, it's the same thing. Like in you know in Memoir Forty Four, no one ever on the Axis side of the table in, in Memoir 44 has said, you know what? My Yog tiger commander here, these tanks, the, like, they surrender. <laughs> they, this is, they can't. This is immoral. It's late in the war. They know. They know what's going on. They surrender. They, no, they, they turn their guns up and, and just raise the white flag. No one in the history of any war game or, <laughs> or board game has ever <laughs> had their little Nazis like say, fuck this, no. Um, no one has ever had the realization of the Mitchell and Webb sket where they, where they realize that they're the baddies. Yeah, yeah, of um, course. But, like, in a role-playing game, that's on the table. Uh, in fact, it should be on the table, like, 
you know, if you're playing a war, you should be able to have um, a moral reflection on the act of war. Uh, And there are, you know, uh, I mean, the the example I I often cite against Memoir 44 is Grey Ranks by Jason Morningstar, um, where you play the Polish resistance in Warsaw. Uh, And yeah, that's not fun. Uh, (laughs) That's some grim shit. Um, But so, you know, how do you get there? I think, well, first of all, you have to prioritize um, like kind of avatar based decisions. You have to, you have to create space for actual moral decisions. There's no space for moral decisions in risk or, or, um, or, uh, or memoir 44. And even what you might think is the moral decision of like, if I knock my sister out of the game at this point, she won't speak to me for the rest of the month and I might not get a Christmas present. Um, uh, but really I need Australia bad. So that's not a moral decision. That's like, that's a, that's another level of decision. That's a social decision. Um, but so fortunately the, um, y- you know, the, the, our ur designers, um, saw that the, the, the necessity, um, for having some kind of morality play happening in these games in order to differentiate them from the war games that they really loved. Um, and so their first attempt at this is alignment. Uh, it's not, <sighs> a, it's not a perfect system, but it does invite uh, you to see the world through the moral lens of your character and to make decisions along that line. Yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of to issues with, with alignment, um, but it is nosing toward the right solution. Um, and, so, right. And, and then you, you individuate the character, you, you give this character some unique attributes or, or, uh, you know, ratings that could describe a human or non-human, you know, in, in this context, uh, right. You give them ties into a community, uh, in, in D D that's usually just the immediate community, your, your confraternity, um, of adventurers, um, but it quickly expands out as role-playing games develop to where you have relationships with non-player characters from the start. Um, yeah. And then you give them a moral outlook. Uh, and, and then that that's part of the magic of role-playing games is like, once you kind of like mix these ingredients into a shaker and just give them a little, uh, and like dump them out for a player, like it, it usually presents something that's pretty engaging and that will get you to the point where you um yeah you're playing a role you're thinking role first you're thinking about making decisions from this uh person's perspective uh, now there's a lot of different decisions to make in a game right as i said before there's social decisions about who to knock out of the game first at what penalty there's uh tactical and resource-based decisions um and and it, you know and then there's avatar-based decisions like you know what would my character do uh, and so, yeah, role-playing game just wants to accentuate uh, certain aspects of that. Like, I, I submit that um, role-playing games, if their system is too tight, uh, they, they'll they start squeezing out all of the, like, the immersive stuff, the moral decisions, the um, performance, and, and whatnot, because players will just be focused on, like, getting that tactical advantage, on, on maximizing the system. Uh, mm. And so, uh, y- you know you want to make sure that for me, at least when I design, I want to make sure that I actually have really rewarding, deep, uh, 
tactical currency cycles in the game. But then at a certain point, they just dump you out. And and like there is just a void between here, like where you are and the, like the next engagement with the mechanic. And you have got to, in that space as a player, make a decision about what your character would do. You have to say a thing. You have to, you have to like, you have to say to the group, well, fuck it. I'm, you know, I, I just, I don't think we should leave this village behind. We're going to burn it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry, that's a real example from one of my games recently. Terrible example. Um, no one was killed, but they wanted to deny it to the enemy. Um, also, my play, my player who did that is a, playing a bad guy, playing a villain. It's bad and wrong to burn anything, <laughs> any villages. I just want to say that. Um, uh, we knew it was bad at the time, uh, but it was a real, like, that was a heavy moral decision. And my player, like, who was playing this general um realized that this was going to be part of his descent you know into villainhood essentially um so it was important even though it was distasteful to us as players at the table i i do love the the kind of differentiation between like wow you're playing a terrible person and also you're my friend but also wow that's a terrible thing for your character to do <laughs> I think that's like one of those special things that RPGs do better than almost anything else. I had one of the greatest moments of my role-playing game career came when I was running D&D for folks at Kickstarter. And most of these folks ha hadn't played or had played just a little bit. And uh, we're doing Caves of Chaos because that is the gold standard for D&D. &D. Uh, keep on the Borderlands, uh, Caves of Chaos. And what is it? They're in cave B. They're in the goblin cave. Um, and they had been getting their asses kicked and were many sessions deep now. Um, and they finally like just like get their shit together and storm the place. And they're mad. They're pissed. Um, and they, you know, they have an elf um, uh, and who had a sleep spell, of course, and they like in the, the climax, right? The battle where they've got the goblin chieftain backed into a corner with a lot of warriors and, and also with a lot of non-combatants. Um, but it's, it's about to be a very bad scene. She puts them uh, to sleep, but gets an incredible role, puts them to sleep. And uh, they, yeah, they, they did the thing that D and D players do there. They did not treat those vulnerable sleeping sapient and sentient creatures very well um and uh I, and i was horrified i as a person and the, and the person who led it uh the, the my my colleague and friend is just so like 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 soft spoken and gentle and compassionate and um and and just like funny and just like really just a, like a, a, this bright light of a human that i just admire and respect so much and i was like pushing back like my my chair from the table being like oh whoa uh guys um uh oof. yeah you yeah no no roll nope nobody needs to roll just tell me what you do yeah you're gonna do that okay yep that's fine that yep it happens <laughs> and i was like i was upset at the end of that session and i um and and then i i, I was like I, I kind of mastered myself a little bit as I was collecting characters. And I said, no, 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 take your characters back. Actually, at the end of the session, I said, take your characters back. Everybody change your alignment to chaos. And they were like, what? They were, yeah. they were like, are, wait, are we being punished? I was like, no, this is not a punishment. Uh, this is how it is. 
you I, like i read the definition of chaos you just did that and like you did not seem to have any regrets so let's just call it what it is change your alignments uh and we'll just go from there and my friend came to me the maybe the next morning and she's like am i a bad person <laughs> And this was actually a just a tremendous moment for me in terms of game design and gameplay. And, uh, you know, I could have said that was fucked up or what the fuck. What, you know, I was horrified. I was offended. I, I, I was all of those things. But for me, in that moment, I stood back and I said, no, you're not a bad person. You're who you are. You're this this person, you know, who I care for very much and who's clearly compassionate and, and you know, wants to help other people uh, in that game you made that decision. You know, you, you did these things in this game and your character is certainly questionable, uh, but you are not a bad person. We're playing a game and you made those decisions in the game. Uh, mm -hmm. And she was so relieved. She was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, she thought I had revealed some inner truth about who she was and like, oh my God, I never knew that I was, you know, this horrible murderer. Um, and that's the... That, though, speaks to the power of role-playing games, is that we can step into this, this space, we can explore this stuff, dark or light, um, and, uh, and then step out and reflect on ourselves as people. Um, it's just, it's beautiful. And for me, it make, it's what makes them, like, the most powerful game medium, is ha having, that, um, uh, having that capacity. Hmm. Uh, to build upon uh, what you're saying, it makes a role-playing game, but a lot of the things that you were saying, it seems like there was a uh, tactile grand strategy or more of a war theme going on. Do you believe that when you do uh, war in a RPG element, it always has to be in the squad or the small scale? Or you were saying that that person is a, uh, a general, so do they also have to roll or play out anything on the grand scale or do you just have their decisions have off-screen things the reason i ask is every game that i've ever played where i have been in a war it's always been very small scale where maybe there'll be one or two encounters and then you get out of it and you're like oh oh we won the battle that's pretty sweet okay mm -hmm. uh guess we'll now uh do this moral choice <laughs> sure yeah i struggle with that as a designer um the the like switching scope and scale i i always want the character's actions to be the character's actions and i want to play out the effects the ramifications of what the character did uh and so i want to make sure that the player is you know and the character at the same point of making a critical decision about the fate of this or that or, or this action that and so yeah oftentimes in my games i just say no don't don't do the big picture just don't ever zoom out always stay with the character and always stay with that character's decisions and so it does result in those more intimate uh modes uh that you're talking about where it's like yeah let's play out a few snapshots um and then uh figure out what happened from there uh so it which can can be unsatisfying uh but i'm you know for torchbearer i actually just released um full on very burning wheel um uh warfare rules with like you know uh, the card system and units and, and and whatnot and and i even in those i i i challenged myself and i said no 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 the 
there's an overall commander who has to make strategy tests in some of these scenarios. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, heroes that are with units, uh, they just help the unit. It's the unit first and the hero just just throws in helping dice. And so you're you're kind of like, I, I love this sense that you're kind of caught along uh, in the forces of war um, that, that are bigger than you. And then, you, you know, you, you don't really know what's going to happen. Um, uh, can't save everyone kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, though, I mean, there are moments like you can challenge another hero or, or things like that. It's fantasy. So you got to have that in there. Um, the, uh, Pendragon does really nicely the kind of like Disney ride version of warfare, um, you know, the, the Pendragon of the Caribbean, um, where, you, yeah, you're, you're making these, uh, tactical or even, you know, these personal roles and tests throughout, uh, this battle. And you're trying to survive these, you know, waves of, of enemies, uh, that you encounter. Um, and yeah, you're trying to win the round, but it's not very strategic. Uh, it works cause like battle in Britain at that point wasn't very strategic. Um, definitely, a lot of um, more about athleticism and, and bravery uh, than, um, y- you know, than even the predecessors, even their, their Romans, uh, ro- the, the, the Roman forebears there. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I really struggle with this. Uh, so in, in this, yeah, in Burning Wheel, like I really do not ever want us to be rolling for something that isn't uh, a character. Um but, uh, but yeah, I'm experimenting with it. I'm always playing with it. I'm always poking like, it, you know, like, cause there is a moral choice for a general to say, all right, I'm going to send this unit into danger. Um, and, uh, you know, and then we, as players, we all lean in and we, you know, we resolve that, um, maybe again, right. With the, maybe the general's helping, um, and maybe there's, you know, some other core die pool. Uh, it still can be very engaging and immersive. I just don't, again, I just like, I can't take too much away from the core of Burning Wheel because of the the way the currency cycle works, the reward system. Uh, so I have to just be really careful um, there. But yeah, I, anyway, sorry. I completely agree. Most role-playing games like that are like that. My role-playing games are like that. Um, and I don't have a terribly good solution. I have a couple of questions that take us a little bit away from RPGs and more to the man behind the curtain. And that's only because um, for newbie world builders, I love to get like a sense of the life path that a lot of the designers we talked to had getting to where they are. Mm. So could you tell me a little bit about what your life paths are? Because as far as I can tell from stalking, you know, your interviews on the internet, I know you live in New York. I believe you have a cat. And from what I understand is after 9-11, you decided to write Burning Wheel. Um, but I don't know anything else about your life. So uh, your professional life or your personal life. So what, what can you tell us about your life paths? Uh, <laughs> what are you willing to tell us? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I grew up, uh, just South of Boston, Milton and Quincy, uh, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I was just, as a kid, I, I really was like always just lost in my head. Like, there are multiple incidents of me like wandering off in a department store um, and having like that, the, you know, like the, that really embarrassing thing that, like um, with, with like, you know, with lost child, please report to the information desk with lost <laughs> child, please report to the information desk. Your mother is worried. Like multiple incidents of that for me. Because I'm just like, Oh, a vacuum. Um, so, um, so role-playing games were a good fit. My, um, 
I can't, I actually, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I can't remember the names of the two gentlemen who introduced me to role-playing games. I was, um, my mother would banish me from the house every summer, probably because I was just like, you know, she's probably sick of like, you know, doing that thing where I'm like wandering around in the days and she's like turning me aside and falling into a pit of lava or something like that, or wandering into the street. Um, so she would banish me from the house every summer and she would send me to off with my grandfather or to one of my aunts or uncles or something like that. Uh, and so I was in Gaithersburg, Maryland with my um, uncle Peter's family uh, when his neighbors invited me over and they like these two guys were the coolest guys in the universe. They had uh, a Nintendo um, and, uh, w- you know, so we played pro wrestling um, forever. And I think I remember we watched some like utterly inappropriate comedy special, like like some Eddie Murphy comedy special or something where I was just like, my brain was scorched. Like, but my mother knew I heard those words. I would be destroyed. Like I'd be atomized. Um, and, uh, and then they were like, Hey, look at this blue book with, uh, like a wizard and a dragon on it. Um, and, uh, and we played like in their basement, one session, like well, barely even a full session of D and D, and I made a dwarf with chainmail and an axe, and I killed a goblin, and that <sighs> changed my life. Um, and then we, the great thing was though, is that they were not prescriptive. Uh, they weren't D and D heads. They were just fucking nerds. And so we also that summer we played D and D. We played Marvel superheroes and uh, I can't remember, something else. But then when I got home, um, I, I went to my best friend, Om Isabel, and I was like, dude, oh my God, I had, I had a changing life experience. And he's like, oh yeah, my brother like introduced me to these games. Like, do you want to play? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, and he's like, all right, cool. This game's called Paranoia. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds scary. And he's like, it's a dark sci-fi game. Um and uh, if for those of you who know Paranoia, you already know the joke. But mm-hmm. um, years years later, I actually was at uh, a convention with the designer of Paranoia, Greg Kostikian, and he was sitting alone on the train coming back. We both lived in New York, and he was on the train. And I was with my friend, and I was like, okay, hold on, dude, I got to do this. And I was like, <laughs> and Greg is notoriously curmudgeonly. Um, and so I'm, I was like, hello, Mr. Kostikian. Uh, I wonder could I, I, I would just, can I tell you a story? And he was like, sure. And, uh, and I was, and I told him that, you know, Paranoia was one of my first role-playing games and that, uh, we played it straight. We played it as straight dark sci-fi. Um, and (laughs) when I was a kid and, uh, and he just looked at me and he kind of, he, he like did a long, slow blink and smirked. And he said, Oh, you poor boy. <laughs> which was great um so but but for me like it's the playing um the other thing that i did when i got home from from that like transformative experience was i just started writing my own game i didn't i, I didn't understand anything that was going on but i i uh i dismantled a like a, an avalon hill game that one of my aunts had given me uh wizard's tower or something i never even played it i just but i dismantled it and turned it into a role-playing game immediately and invited my friend over um and to, to play it and and of course in my role-playing game you could play demons and gremlins and all this other shit. <laughs> um but uh 
Yeah, the, I, I think that's really like a, a, a testament to the medium is that it's so powerful and inspiring and so open that uh, many, many people, I would I venture even most people who, who encounter it, muse about like doing it their way. Um, and, uh, but, but from that moment, uh, I actually never stopped designing. Um, it just took me about 20 years to realize that, um, one could actually publish a game or make a game. This isn't really the case anymore. There weren't any game design programs. Um, role-playing games were certainly not cool mainstream things. Um, like there were no cool voice actors being like, I'm handsome and I play role-playing games. Nope, not happening. Uh, uh, and, um, yeah. And to me, like the names on those books, like I didn't understand that they were people like Gygax. That wasn't the name of a person. That was the name of a wizard. (laughs) Right. That's the name of a necromancer. Um, uh, so I just didn't understand. Uh, and, uh, I, I just, I, I wasn't very smart. I'll be honest. Um, the, uh, but I kept making these games and then we played in, um, uh, like I made burning wheels a joke for a friend. Uh, it was like a birthday present. Um, and, uh, and, but then we, you know, we, we kept playing it and, and we played a couple of years later in this game that was really formative for us. Uh, uh, you know, it was really, it, it was, a, it was one of the first times where we kind of went into the, the game with an intent to make moral decisions, like to play into this aspect rather than like stumbling into it, uh, where like, you know, I, you know, when you stumble into it in a role-playing game is classic, like you set up like the these dark allies that the players can ally with and you know and my players are like these people are fucking horrible no like fuck no we're going to destroy them and i was like what oh okay um <laughs> and like, right and like i i i just was i wasn't thinking about that but they made that decision but this game that we played where we went in with, uh with with an intent that this was going to be about like some serious shit and we played it and it was great and I said after that game, I was like, that that was kind of fun and it kind of worked. Like, should we publish this? And uh, they, my friends were like, yeah, cool. And then like two years later, they're all like, no, this sucks. This is hard work. <laughs> yeah. And I remember one of my beloved dear friends was like, dude, maybe you shouldn't do this. And I was like, <gasps> it was probably the best thing he ever said to me because i was just like super cyan like rage of stubbornness just like no i will do this i will finish this um but yeah in in that moment it's uh you know like while 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 we were making that decision while we were, were talking about it like we i think we we had already started noodling with it but yeah, I saw um a, a lot of people die right in front of me um and uh it scared the shit out of me. Uh, I mean, I live in New York. I, I was on sixth Avenue when the, the towers came down. I was very close. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. And so it, 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 uh, it, I definitely had one of those moments of mortality and I was just like, you know, I actually have a really good life and, uh, I should use what opportunities I have. Um, I, 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 I should make use of, of, this this moment this energy uh and that that really drove me to to finish and publish the game um and then after that 
my dudes, all the, the people wondering about life paths, the, the, the one, the one smart decision I ever made, I think in my entire life, it wasn't publishing the game. That was a dumb decision. Um, <laughs> but the, um, the, uh, the one smart thing I, I, I did was as soon as I got the game out there and as soon as I started to get my feet under me of, of like, uh, you know, you know, of, of having published a game and what that meant, I turned around and I started helping other people. I started, you know, doing panels at shows or just talking to people who wanted to publish games, answering questions. Uh, and uh, that that carried me through like care that like helping other people make games. Um, and then, and also in turn being helped. Like I, I ended up falling in with an incredible crowd of designers. Uh, and, um, yeah. And, and I just never stopped. And I, like, I never stopped helping people make games, answering questions. Yeah. If you, I mean, don't do this, please. But if you write me like a, uh, uh, a question about role-playing game design, I will probably answer you. Uh, <laughs> I will, I will probably, even if I don't answer you immediately, it will, I'll keep it there and until I have time and I will probably answer you. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so now, uh, I, I, you know, um, um, part of this like incredible community of, of role-playing game designers who are, are still publishing work and sharing ideas and building off of each other. Uh, I, um, I get to do great stuff like talk to y'all. I, I teach role-playing game design at NYU and, uh, and, and at Kickstarter, my job is to literally to help people m like make creative stuff. Um, and that came, all of that comes from that decision. Uh, not like yes to make, but going further to, to then turn around and, and, and hold out a hand for people coming up behind me. That is an incredible journey, Luke. Honestly, like that is that is seriously one hell of a life path. Yep. And uh, I mean, like like you said, I mean, you another another path that you can make is to have you answer questions, is create your own podcast, and then politely email you to come on, and then we get all of these years of game design experience, you know, at our whim, more or less, right? And. The, the final question that I have for you before we roll into some Patreon questions is you have all this game design experience, right? Like I, I can't imagine that you're not looking at the future of games, that you're not feverishly reading a bunch of new games as they come out. And, you know, we, we've had the, the hobby is as popular as it's ever been probably more. So, I mean, like you said, we have handsome people playing it now, which is pretty great. But my, my point is, uh, with with this boom, right? Especially with like even indie books kind of thriving, you have the OSR, you have PBTA, you have D and D, obviously, but that's not indie. And you have guys like Morkborg. Like, what do you see as the future of the industry? What are like wh what's the next step? And I'm sure you hear this all the time, but like, what do you see from an industry insider's perspective? Um, well. You know, I, I get to see uh, some some bits and pieces inside of the industry, but um, I think Kickstarter is actually a pretty good indicator here that uh, there is an audience for these games, uh, and there is an audience for these games that wants to support like quirky designs and independent designers, and they want 
beautiful objects from them. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, like the the output of role playing games on Kickstarter has been growing since I started there um, in in 2012, and that's really significant. It's not so. It's not just about like D and D is more popular than ever. It, it's the the very virtuous cycle of yeah, the more popular the big dogs are, the more um, other games people want. Uh, you know, the more other facets they want to describe. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, the, I, I also think it's a cycle. I think that we will, uh, you know, like this idea of like making these like increasingly beautiful objects and, and, and whatnot, um, will peak at, at a certain point. Uh, but then you have also the very like lush garden of itch games, which uh, are um, like almost speculative. And like, I, I look at these games and I'm like, I wouldn't call that a role-playing game, but you are, that's interesting. How, what am I missing? Like what's going on there? <laughs> uh, right. That they're, they're simple, bespoke, experimental. It's great. It, it's mm. fantastic. They should be challenging these norms um they, they should be questioning everything that's the 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 group that i fell in was doing the same thing in like 2002 2003 they were really investigating the the underpinnings of role-playing games and, and making things and immediately like the games that they would put out people would challenge and be like that's not a role-playing game um and yeah maybe maybe not but it it's a but we should always be iterating and um you know interrogating our uh our design precepts. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I like, I can't like Jared, my friend Jared Swartzen likes to say like, you know, 2008, no more role-playing games. It's not 2008 anymore, but, um, but I, I hesitate to make any like massive prognostications aside from just recognizing that like the, the space seems, seems underserved and is growing and that there is a really wonderful, uh, like experimental avant-garde, uh, kind of coming up in a very carefree manner um, through these like small form, um, yeah, small form games that folks are calling itch games right now. But that's just because that's where a lot of them are being published. All right. And with that, we're going to transition to some real quick patron questions. Mm -hmm. The first one's coming from Honestly Kidding. And he wants to know what is something you wish consumers better understood about your industry? Or in other words, what question do you wish you got asked but never do? Oh, I wish you understood that it's really, really hard to do this, to make these games. There's no reward in it. There's no money. And mm -hmm. that none of you who buy a role-playing game understand how much it costs to ship something. <laughs> none of you understand the difficulty in taking a physical object and transporting it from one location to you. Amazon has us thinking that magic is involved, right. but yeah, right. I, I, it is not free. Uh, it is not fast. <laughs> oh. uh, I, as someone who recently moved and sold off a large part of their like hardcover RPG books, mm -hmm. I had to have a friend, Chris, in fact, help me grab these giant boxes and grab and move them to USPS. And I lived like 
a block away and it was still we still had to get like a dolly because of how unbelievably obnoxious it was just to move that shit so i dolly can't even yeah and by dolly i mean a chair that we found in the street so yeah uh chris not not this chris a different chris wants to know what has been your favorite kickstarter project that failed either to get funded or to be delivered um so <laughs> there's so many good ones, man. The thing the, the 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 poor decision that folks make about Kickstarter is that they come there for the thing that they want. And you really should stay and uh, poke around and, and look at all the things you never expected to find because there is so much crazy, wonderful, weird shit uh that uh happens on the platform um so where is this uh yes here it is go forth to kickstarter and look at the mill creek monster the free swimming and floating sea monster (laughs) what why didn't this fund this guy wanted a thousand dollars he in like what is wrong with you people? <laughs> he he wanted a thousand dollars to to put a fake sea monster in Mill Creek near Boston. <laughs> what, did, he should Wait. get government funding. <laughs> Why would it cost a thousand dollars to put in like some debris in a creek? That doesn't make very much sense. I trust him. Look this. I, I, <laughs> It's shipping. Lights on it. <laughs> you don't know how realistic this monster looks. Yeah, apparently, ILM is getting involved with this fucking Mill Creek monster. He's gonna ship it. Luke was just talking about this. This, I, he, yeah, he's from Revia. Uh, uh, he's a veteran too. What the hell? What are you? Mon- you're monsters. This isn't the monster. We are the monsters. I back this project, so I I am morally impregnable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. All right. With that being said, we're ready to roll on into the world building jam. Luke Crane, are you ready? Not at all, but let's go. All right. We get that answer more than you might think. Now, for those of you who might not understand what this is all about, we're going to create a scenario by rolling some dice and letting our imaginations run wild. So first, we're going to pick up the genre, whether it be between science fiction, fantasy, horror, modern day, romance, or superhero. Next, we have a subject, which is between an item, a monster, a place, an historical figure, an event, or a cataclysm. And we're going to roll those first. So the genre is going to be science fiction, with the subject of our scenario being... And historical figure. Next, we're going to involve one of the seven archetypal stories of fiction. And then we're going to go from there. So we're going to roll with the quest. So Luke Crane, we've got a science fiction historical figure that is all about the quest. And as our guest, you get to start us off. So please take the reins. We're looking for a premise, basically. Okay, uh, let's go with Sir Isaac Newton 
trying to decipher the uh, word of God uh, in the Bible. Oh. Yeah, for some of you, they're not very good at that. That's actually one, a really brilliant start. So, yeah, let's go with that. I also like that this is science fiction. Yeah, well, he was a scientist. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a proto-scientist. And, uh, but he, while while he was, you know, scratching out his formulas and tossing them off his workbench, he, he was strenuously trying to decode the Bible. Wow, okay. This is bringing me back to late nights watching the History Channel. Does oh, yeah. he? Does hey, he have Hitler's a? Not involved in this. <laughs> does, does he have? Is he? Does he have an inkling of what he might find in doing the decoding? Oh yeah, yeah. It's the. So there's two books. Um, there's the the Book of Nature and the mm-hmm. Book of God, uh, and if he can decode the the you know the word of god the book of god then he can have dominion divine dominion over the book of nature oh which will allow Mm. him to control the science that he understands it will i mean between us he doesn't know this sorry isaac uh but uh it it will give him science that's the real thing is it will Uh you know it will give him fundamental understanding of how the the universe works and and right and allow him to affect it in ways that he could not otherwise Um, but but also you have to understand is that that's it's a a cycle that is divinity um um, in addition to what what we know it it, as it being like uh yes scientific thought and understanding of of forces that um they hadn't quite caught into at, at that point um the uh for the way they thought of it though was that it was um it yeah that it it was the key to divinity all right so do we do we want to take this and be like all right do we want to take the easy route which is this is the alien like this is aliens are essentially the creator and these are the alien tech that he's kind of deciphering or do we want to do something else with it what do you think i want something else like i think that's sweet yeah, I, I kind of agree. I was I, like, I, I threw that out there as something I don't want to do, so we can not yeah. do it. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea that the divine is follows different rules that, in turn, like reveal the rules that govern the universe, and mm-hmm. so you have to like understand that book in order to get power over the universe because I guess it, it's the origin of those rules. What I wonder though is like, is there a way to then, uh, is there a way towards rewriting? Um, the book, the divine book in the end, like is maybe that another overriding goal he realizes like, who's the villain? I guess is the question here. Is, is Isaac potentially the villain, you know, or who's the adversary? He was a nut. Leibniz. Um, <laughs> uh, right. Isn't Leibniz the one that, that uh, independently comes up with the same formulas uh, that he does. Oh, so maybe he's working with, with him then. Um, yeah. Uh, they have different goals. Or, yeah, they have different... Well, Leibniz is actually just a mathematician, where Isaac was a mm-hmm. fucking nut. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize this. Like, I, I was doing the research, you know, and I, I went a little bit forward to try to figure out, like, scientific thought and, and uh, you know, and humanism and whatnot. It, it, in the 17th century, I, Isaac's obviously after that, but I, yeah, and I, I read up on him and I was like, oh, oh, you're the real deal. 
um you 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 uh you really believe all this stuff um so who was so it's not the church it's past time for for the church to be uh um the enemy like it's hard like yeah what what the the i i think i i if it's a quest though right i so a, a science fiction quest is really really difficult and mm-hmm. i think uh, they, they're typically quests typically a fantasy mode. Um, so I, the quest for Isaac has to be internal. It, I, I think the mm-hmm. quest is that it, like it's internal discovery for him. And you know, it's like this is it, it, we should make two thousand and one yes. with Isaac Newton, like and the Bible and gravity. <laughs> yes, yes, I like this. <laughs> All right, I think this is probably a good time to throw in the twist. And see where that goes. So we're going to roll a D10 here and figure out what the twist in the story is. Oh, this one's actually really interesting. So each person and character in this story can now only feel one emotion. Ooh. Okay. Oh, weird. Oh. Yeah. That's, that's actually a brand new one too. So in and out in one shot. Great job. Um, so yeah, so, how has uh, Sir Isaac fucked himself up here? Uh, like, right? How how is he? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe what what in being revealed the rules right from the divine book, maybe he realizes that the rules are arbitrary, that there's not really a specific order to them. Uh, but but how does what's the emotion that? Uh, so like despair, <laughs> maybe. Oh, yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah. he oh, realizes uh, that there's actually. N- no choice. What if uh, everyone is already pre-programmed oh. and things are kind of decided for you? So your actions oh, aren't great. even your own. So hmm. determinism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah. so the only thing that he can do is the ap- opposite action of what he feels is right, because that's mm-hmm. the only way you can actually make a choice. So despair. <laughs> despair. <laughs> See, my brain went to Silver Age Batman where Isaac Newton somehow splits himself into a rainbow of emotions. And so it's not like an individual Isaac Newton anymore, but rather he somehow splits himself into multiple people. Oh, he did work with prisms. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all coming together. Thanks, Rainbow Batman. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he published his influential book Optics uh, in 1704. Maybe, maybe how he bypasses the determinism is he uses the math, the mathematician's knowledge of the divine language, to create multiple different situations, like v- different versions of himself, so that each choice he can make is a separate person, thereby giving himself free will again. Whoa. A spiritual prism, as it were. Mm-hmm. Oh, but then. Right, but how does he unify that to action? Oh, right, yeah, he, so he's he has he has separated himself here, and he knows that this or feels that that right this part of himself is making the right decision, but then he has another part of himself that is just feeling right. despair. Uh, so yeah, how how does he unify that to action? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Oh, Maybe or does he just disperse into the universe? That's actually what I was thinking, where it's like the other parts of him ascend into divinity, as he would call it and as he would know it. And the historical figure that we know is the remnants of that single emotion that he had. So maybe that would kind of describe 
you know, why he was such, as you would say, a fucking nut, you know, where <laughs> he, he is like that whole range is like, oh, that's all he was left with. He is a husk or, or, or a hollow so compared to what he was. Like yeah. the Chief Numinous was, but the piece that we know of him is one of the prison slices. Cool. More or less. Yeah. All right. I think we're good. I think that's <laughs> going to wrap it up, frankly. I think we're, I think that's 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 going to be good enough. So that brings us to the rapid fire round. I never ask if you're ready because no one ever is. Luke Crane, my wife wants to know, is cereal a soup? Uh, no. Yes. Okay. And uh, I, uh, everyone wants to know, what have you been playing recently? Uh, I actually play tested a very crazy weird new game uh, the other night with um, Tommy and Corey from Inhuman Conditions and Christopher Bedell from um, uh, Sentinels. Um, and they were very, very generous in giving and playing this fucking weird game that I came up with a couple weeks ago. Um, but aside from that, uh, just playing my own games, did playing a lot of Torchbearer and playing uh, a lot of Bring Wheel. I have not been able to play video games in the lockdown. Oh, it's me too. Very really? weird. Mm-hmm. I I haven't been able to do it. Um, I I did. In my defense, I, I had to like write and edit a thousand pages of material for Torchbearer Second Edition. <laughs> so I was a little busy, uh, but I have not had the the even the capacity. I, I disconnected my Xbox. Don't tell my friend. Um, I, I like just disconnected it and put it back in the box. Um, so uh, yeah, and I had like I opened up Steam once and was like, <sighs> <laughs> all right, and. Uh, oh. Oh, I kind of already asked that one. So, Daniel, I'll let you have the floor. Go ahead. Uh, my rapid-fire question is not so rapid-fire, so I only have one. Um, but it's going to be, can you describe, can you tell us about your favorite fight or duel of wits scenario that you have played? Favorite fight or duel of wits scenario? Or, or interesting, most inter- oh. the one that is most memorable to you. Oh, there's a, there, as you might imagine, we have a history of them. Um <laughs> The, uh, oh man, there was, uh, we had some really good ones recently, but the, 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 probably the, the one that like our lives pivoted on was when, um, the, the players were sent to, um, undo this horrible thing, uh, you know, this scar upon the world. And it was revealed that, um, they, they thought it was this sorcerer who had done it, but it was revealed that it was one of the players who had done it uh, and really actually had done it. <laughs> and that one of the other other characters had known all along. And so oh two, two of the players, two, everyone, all the players knew, but it finally came out for the characters what really happened uh, and that they were fighting the wrong enemy. And, that, you know, they were risking their lives for nothing, essentially, uh, to go against the sorcerer. And so, it, like, basically you know, in the, like the, the like celestial audience hall of the, of the sorcerer before they, they, you know, preparing for the final encounter, they just turned on one another. And we had this insane uh, fight, like straight up, like get out the scripting sheets, uh, uh, four way fight. And um, one, yeah. And the, the, the character who was assumed to win to uh, did not, like who was everyone thought he was going to win um 
uh, did not. And this like, uh, and in fact, he took two very grievous wounds. Um, and, uh, and on the second one, he chose a complication and, uh, with the complication broke this ancient sword that they had like, that the emperor had given them to accomplish this task of killing this wizard. Um, so as they were fighting, it was just so perfect, right? They're fighting each other. They fucking break the sword. They need to kill the wizard, which then resulted in this wild duel of wits with the wizard. Uh, and, and like, and everyone's shifting sides. Like now some of them are on the wizard side and like, oh, wow. like it was really, really good. That was a few years ago. Um, and yeah and, and it just like it's just one of those moments that just set the campaign off like at a trot uh after that we were like oh, oh, oh lots to do now it, it was like it, we needed time like after that to like decompress but uh but yeah we have not stopped playing since then that's awesome and chris you have a rapid fire question for luke as well yeah i've been noticing that pretty much all of the creators that we have on seem to be listening to heavy metal music while they're creating uh what are you listening to fuck yes <laughs> uh, well yesterday i i bought uh a, a a ton of industrial actually by street sex and paragon and uh jk flesh um uh but uh i I made a compilation, like a, a the kids today call it a playlist. I would call it a mixtape, uh, even though there's no more tape involved. Um, uh, of all the uh, the stuff that I've been listening to over the uh, the past eight months, and, and most of it is metal. I will be honest. Uh, Zeal and Ardor, Thou, Oransi Pazuzu, uh, High on Fire, Spotlights, Trespasser. Um, Vile Creature, Ulcerate, oh my god, the Ulcerate album that they released this year. Come on, everybody. Uh, Neckbeard Death Camp, also spirit <laughs> possession. Yeah, incredible. Um, yeah, if you like fucking like super grungy uh protest metal, it is there. Um, Bismuth, uh, uh they uh did the the Torchbearer uh second edition soundtrack for me uh it was really good um i can in fact send you this link to this uh to this playlist uh, i put it up on youtube um we uh, will uh we'll have that in the show notes for sure if you want to send that to us that's not a problem at all but, but yeah i love dark weird heavy music wasn't awesome. uh the serpent uh from at the gates uh yeah uh uh the 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 game we did under serpent sun yeah, yeah it was based on um at the gates slaughter the soul and the haunted and some other stuff all right and uh last last question who is someone who you would like to shout out who is not yourself um i just want to say that i you know i, I miss uh, my, my friends uh i miss vincent baker and john harper uh sean nittner and um uh, and you know that crew i'm just seeing them out at shows i miss going to their their towns and hanging out um but uh yeah if you i'm sure you are all on john harper's tip right now but he is just on <laughs> fire uh and i opened uh uh agon when i got it and i just like i gasped and was just like oh sensei just teach me sensei <laughs> uh, 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 
are really good friends and I, I love him and I am just envious of his uh, many talents. Absolutely. And Luke, where can people find you on the internet or in general? Please don't come and find me. I will come and find you. When <laughs> appropriately, please. You. Yes, appropriately. Yeah. Uh, but I'm burning underscore Luke on the, the Twitters. Um, burning wheel at burningwheel.com if you need to email me any questions. Burningwheel.com if you want to buy a game. Uh, but other, otherwise, uh, I just try to keep my head down um, and make games these days. Excellent. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a hell of a ride. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun. And we're back. Uh, gentlemen, that was our longest interview, but also I didn't want it. I feel like we could have gone for another hour okay. with very little issue. Oh, yeah. He he has a lot to say, <laughs> and it shows. A lot of energy. And not only that, was not expect. Okay, I was kind of expecting to fall down the history nerd hole, uh -huh. but still, like I will always willingly fall down that nerd hole when presented the option. So yeah, I mean, I love how a lot of what he talked about, like, got to the heart of like what role playing is about, and I think that it's really hard to pin that down. But I think he did an amazing job, like, getting us a sense of why we go to the table to do this stuff. Absolutely. Or getting up from the table in terms of yes. and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was amazing listening to him talk about game design. He was very passionate and very energetic. I'm not sure how much of that is going to come through in the audio, but probably will. Pretty much all of it is, is my guess. Yeah. You can, you can really tell the passion and like excitement that he has for the, for the industry and for the hobby and, that's something that I just, I mean, it's, it's admirable, frankly, you know, like to be able to do something that you truly love that much. That's just very cool. And uh, not only that, I, I was, I wasn't expecting when we rolled sci-fi to have Isaac Newton pop up, but. Um, <laughs> or like a, a spiritual, a spiritual quest is really what it ended up being, yeah, which I really yeah. love when, just as he was saying, you know, you guys, the spirituality merging with the science fictional element to create you know, this kind of like, so 2001 scenario. Absolutely. I, I love the endless creativity that we get out of these scenario building. Like it's just so much mm -hmm. fun. Just seeing where people are at really is also okay. It's just like, oh wow, wouldn't have went with that at all. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was actually going to ask, like, hey, what what's the most recent rabbit hole you fell down? Apparently Isaac Newton. Uh that's gonna be my <laughs> guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh all right. Well, that's gonna do it for this episode of World Build with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, remember that if you want to send a prompt in so we can build your world, you can do so by sending an email to worldbuildwithus at gmail.com or you can send us a tweet over at Let's World Build. And if you want to become part of our ever-growing, ever-popular Discord channel, you can go ahead and follow the link in the description. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can join our Patreon and give us money. But it's more than just the money. You get other cool stuff with it, like VIP access to world building prompts, uh, episodes coming out early, among other really cool benefits. You can look in the description below and you know maybe follow it if you want to give us money. If not, that's fine too. That'll do it for this week. Remember that we love you very much and we will see you next year.